Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. In January of 2017, the Chicago-based Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, creators of the Doomsday Clock, assessed the world to be 30 seconds closer to annihilation due to threats posed by climate change and nuclear weapons, as well as strident nationalism, fake news and an intemperate Donald Trump. Chair of the Bulletin Science and Security Board, theoretical physicist and author of The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far, Lawrence Krauss, returned to the festival to talk climate change and to offer advice on how to stay the apocalypse. We hope you enjoy this session. Thank you. Oh, there are people here. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Thanks. There was no one in here a little bit ago, so I didn't think there'd be anyone here now. Okay. Um, yeah, it's an interesting thing to come to the book, the Writers' Festival and talk about something that in principle has nothing to do with my book. But that's okay, because in a way it does. I'll sneak it in, as you'll see. But for the first part, I, I want to depress you for the next while. I, um, I just flew in and I've been preparing these slides, so we'll see where they go. Uh, and we'll see if the uh, remote works. There we go. So, indeed, I am um, privileged to be chairman of the board of sponsors of the Bolton the Atomic Scientist. The Bolton was created in uh, 1945, by, and, and the board of sponsors was, was created uh, two years later, along with the Doomsday Clock, Albert Einstein, and Robert Oppenheimer chaired that board, and I'm kind of amazed that I'm doing it now. But, um, and, over, and, and one of the things that was done in 1947, 70 years ago, was to create an iconic image that would alert the public to, at that time to the dangers of nuclear war. And uh, it became the doomsday clock. And every year, uh, we, we reset the doomsday clock. It's a, very, it's a fun meeting that I get to go to called the Doomsday Symposium where we talk about all the different ways we can, all the different existential threats and the way we can destroy ourselves with humanity, and then try and decide where it sits. And indeed, uh, in, in Was four days after the inauguration of, of President Trump, we, I was in Washington announcing the, the new doomsday clock, which had been moved forward to, to two and a half minutes to midnight. This is the, the image from the doomsday clock. And that is the, Closest it's been to midnight in 65 years, which caused a lot of attention in the worldwide media, wondering why we had, we had uh, was it really that dangerous? And what I said at the time is that it, it was, what's important is not the absolute value of the clock, because clearly there's not a lot of real estate left. And this is the very first time we've ever moved it by less than a minute in either direction. We've kept it st st in the same spot various times. It's been as far back as 17 minutes to midnight and as close to two minutes to midnight over the last 70 years. And uh, so I, I, I want to talk to you about why we did that and then I'll talk to you maybe about the things that I think are important to try and get away from this situation we're in. And I apologize that, it, that, that the, all the things I'm going to talk about are not pleasant in the first part because in fact the world is a dangerous place. And the value of the doomsday clock is at least for one day the world pays attention to, to deep and long-term th global threats. And we, we adjusted the doomsday clock for a variety of reasons, some of which had never been done before. So I want to talk about that. So the first issue is nuclear weapons. The, the, when I became chair of the board about 10 years ago, uh, we decided to expand things. Up to that point, the, the bulletin, which had been created by 
so-called atomic scientists, uh, was really people from the Manhattan Project that had built the first nuclear weapon, focused on nuclear weapons. But it also became clear that the world was, there were other emerging existential threats. And, and we now consider nuclear weapons, climate change, emerging technologies, and for the very first time, Donald Trump. And, uh, and I'll explain what context. But the key point about nuclear weapons is, is the sentence that Albert Einstein said in, I think, 1945, after the explosion of the first nuclear weapon, which is that everything has changed save the way we think. Because a world with nuclear weapons is dramatically different than the world was before them. It's the first time that humans had the, uh, the opportunity or the potential to literally destroy all, all life on the planet using human technology. And you'd think that that would cause a dramatic shift in the way we think. But in the last 70 years, it hasn't caused a dramatic shift at all. And in fact, there's been a complacency that has been disturbing. And many people don't realize that we, that now that the Cold War is over, people think that there's no problem. But in fact, things have not changed very much at all. The United States and Russia are continuing to act as if they are in a Cold War with the potential to annihilate each other at any moment. They act in a way that isn't appropriate to current circumstances. There are over, between just those two countries, 15,000 nuclear weapons possessed by both those countries. What you may not know is that over 1,000 weapons are on active alert. That means that, they c that if there's a, a, a signal of an incoming, incoming weapon, whether it's a false signal or not, they could be launched in a, in a few minutes. There's no reason in the current world for them to be on active alert. There's no threat of uh, uh, the, the two countries are not planning to, at this point, launch 1,000 or, or 1,500 nuclear weapons at each other. At the time of the Cold War, when, there were, when in fact there were about 60,000 nuclear weapons possessed by those two countries, and each one might have had of order 10,000 aimed at each other, uh, there isn't much time when an intercontinental ballistic missile is launched, and there might have been some rationale and what's called mutually assured destruction for those two countries to, to maintain thing, a launch on warning status. Every president, before they've come in, has said they'll remove that alert status because there have been many times over the last 70 years when we've come excruciatingly close to nuclear war because of a false signal. And that still persists. Of course, there's, the United States and, and Russia are now engaged in new tensions, having to do with Syria, the Ukraine, NATO, etc. These are the things that led us to, to, our, uh, to our decision to move things forward. Another thing that's really important to point out is that both the United States and Russia are modernizing their nuclear weapons fleet. Now, this is fascinating and unfortunate. The United States is planning to spend $1 trillion modernizing its nuclear weapons fleet. And Russia is planning new ballistic missile submarines, new silo-based launchers. And what message does this send to the world? There was a non-proliferation treaty, which in one of the few treaties that the United States actually signed and ratified. But in fact, I would argue that the major countries, the nuclear powers that possess nuclear weapons, are violating the non-proliferation treaty. Because the non-proliferation treaty says that other countries the country, the non-nuclear states will not, will not obtain nuclear weapons, but it also requires the nuclear weapon states to disarm. And when you're willing to spend a trillion dollars modernizing your nuclear weapons fleet, what, what does that send? What message does that send, say, North Korea, 
where we say, you shouldn't have nuclear weapons, but we'll modernize ours. At the time we, we, we did this before the inauguration of the president, North Korea was a looming problem, as you know from reading the news in the last few weeks. It's a problem that's getting more and more serious, and I'll talk about it in the context. What people don't realize is that perhaps one of the hottest spots in the world for the use of nuclear weapons is India and Pakistan, each of which have over 100 nuclear weapons. And in both countries, precariously, the apparatus, particularly in Pakistan, the nuclear weapons apparatus has been precariously kept out of the hands of terrorists. But there are tensions in those two countries. And what has been realized recently by physicists, uh, Carl Sagan had proposed this a while ago, but it wasn't quite correct, but we now, we've now done studies. And a nuclear war between India and Pakistan, there's no such thing as a local nuclear war. The launch of 50 or 100 nuclear weapons between those two countries, we can show, would change the global climate, killing perhaps a billion people over the next decade by producing famines. So there is no local nuclear war. We, we have no comprehensive test ban treaty. The United States has not signed on to a comprehensive test ban treaty. We haven't had any nuclear weapons tests in, in, in now over 20 years uh, in the United States and Russia and the nuclear weapons states. But we haven't signed on to that. And if one modernizes the nuclear weapons fleet with new weapons, the question is, will the United States start testing nuclear weapons again? It's a great concern. The current administration has argued that, and although today they said they wouldn't scrap it, we'll see, but throughout the campaign, uh, the now President Trump claimed that he would th throw out the Iran nuclear treaty, which was a triumph of diplomacy over military uh, uh, attack. It stopped Iran from having a nuclear weapon and having the capability to have a nuclear weapon. It, it, was it was actually, the, the treaty was coordinated by physicists, of actually a friend of mine, Ernie Moniz, who was the Secretary of Energy at the time. And, um, and it literally took Iran from being on the cusp of, of being a nuclear weapon state to not being on the cusp for at least 15 years without, without a weapon being launched. There are huge concerns about missile defense. The United States wants to put a missile defense system in Europe. The interesting thing about missile defense is it's an illusion. In 2004, when President, then President Bush said that they were going to create a, nu a nuclear weapons a missile defense system that would be 90% effective and, 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 and have it running in a year, it turned out 50% of the American public thought we already had a, a, a missile defense system, which I argued was the the right thing to do. We just leave it that way because uh, no missile defense system is just as effective as the missile defense system that we spent over a trillion dollars building since it doesn't defend anyone against nuclear missiles. It doesn't work. And so it's just, we might as well just say we have one and save the money. Climate change is another issue which may come up. There we go. Now, climate change has been mixed results. As you know, there was the Paris Accords, okay, which at least for the moment, although the current U.S. administration is potentially going to, going to come out of the Paris Accords, we'll see. There's great debate within the, within the government right now about what's going to happen. The good news is that CO2 levels have been rising up to about 19, in 2015, 2016, for the first time, the levels were flat. I'll show you data in a second. So they haven't decreased at all. That's good news, but it's not great news, because if we continue to d dump carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at the levels of 2015, 2016, you'll see that there are going to be severe problems. But at least it hasn't increased for the first time 
in probably 20 years. The negatives are the Paris Accord is not a binding agreement, and, the, and even, what, even the potential goals that all the countries signed onto are far less than what's necessary to stop catastrophic climate change. As I'll show you, temperatures are continuing to warm and now are a full degree Celsius higher than they were uh, in the average of the last century. It is fascinating to realize that in the United States, the United States is the only country in which the, um, the party in power that controls all three branches of government denies the existence of human-induced climate change. And it is, by the way, the major per capita emitter of carbon dioxide. That's a problem. And there was another meeting in Marrakesh, which, which one would hope, just before the new administration came in, which might have required additional cuts, which will be necessary, as you'll see, to keep temperature change within a level that might not cause catastrophic changes in the world. Uh, but no additional cuts were made in Marrakesh. Let me spend a little time on the data, because I, I, um, there's an illusion in, in the United States, at least, that climate change is some prediction that is built by liberal scientists and, there, and, and of course, uh, it's controversial. The point is, it is, the future is based on some modeling, but climate change isn't in the future, it's happening now. And the data is worth showing, so I want to just show you some of the data. Of course, the data on climate change really began with observations of carbon dioxide levels uh, in, in uh, Mauna Loa in Hawaii with Charles Keeling, who started it. And you can see, of course, there's variations every year as, as plant life changes over the course of seasons, but it's been monotonically increasing. That was the first indication that there was a problem, that humans were, for the first time in human history, globally affecting the climate. Here's the growth rate, even though we've known about this, here's the growth rate over from 2000 to 2010. We are still dumping about 10 gigatons of carbon. Remember that number, 10 gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere every year. That's about 37 gigatons of carbon dioxide. That was in 2012. You'll see it went up a little. So there's 2012 there, and it continued to increase, but for the first time it kind of remained flat since then. But we're, we're, we're dumping close to, depending upon how you do it, 35 to 37 gigatons of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and it continues to increase. The U.S., even though we talk about the third world, the U.S. is still the leader per capita. The United States, by far, produces the most carbon dioxide emissions in the world per capita. You can see, of course, as China, as China began to industrialize, uh, it increased, and now, of course, because there are many more capitas in China, it's producing more carbon dioxide, but per person, the United States is still producing a lot. Europe is, 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 is still per capita more than China, and India is slowly on the rise as, as it begins to industrialize. The signs are not in the right direction. Now, I want to go through all this quickly because uh, there's, if I wanted to spend, give you a full lecture on climate change, it would take longer than I have. But we can, we can actually look where are the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Remember, we're dumping 10 gigatons of carbon per year into the atmosphere, and we know where it goes, okay? We, it, it, we know where, where the different sources and sinks of carbon, uh, of carbon in the atmosphere are. There's 600 gigatons in the atmosphere where, where when you look at, at what comes out of the biosphere, half it goes up, half it goes into terrestrial soils. Some of, some of it goes into shells, which, 
which fall to the bottom of the ocean, eventually get put into deep earth reservoirs and come out in volcanoes. You notice these two numbers are exactly identical. For most of the history of the Earth, there was a carbon dioxide balance. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would come into the oceans, become carbonic acid, uh, form calcium carbonate, shells fall to the bottom, get put into the Earth due to global plate tectonics, and come out as volcanoes. But all of this changed with humanity. We've added in the, during the industrial era already 400 gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere. At the current rate we're going by 2200, we will add another 1,000 to 4,000 gigatons. 1,000 to 4,000 gigatons. Now, when, when people talk, you know, we may have 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide, and many of the politicians in my country say 400 parts per million. You know, that's nothing. How can that have a global effect? But we're, we're going to dump uh, uh, potentially 4,000 gigatons of carbon, and you can see that clearly it has a global effect. It's a large amount compared to all the carbon that's already in the atmosphere, to all the carbon that's stored in, 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 in the oceans. This is, a, this is not a, that number, 400 parts per million, should not be taken to be a small number, because when you add it up, humanity has produced an amount comparable to that to the global amounts of carbon dioxide in this. In this. And, and as I say, even in 2011, we were dumping, humanity was dumping, was taking deep earth reservoirs, oil and gas, turning it into carbon dioxide and dumping it in the atmosphere at the rate of 10 gigatons per year. Now, again, I just want to say, the reason I put this up is that this isn't rocket science. It's simple physics. That's the other thing that people argue, that somehow it's controversial. It's simple Undergraduate physics, you, carbon dioxide traps heat. Solar radiation comes down, it re-radiates carbon dioxide, re-radiates back down to the Earth. And you can actually look at the sources of energy, where they come from and how they're stored, and it's simple energy accounting. It's not rocket science. It's, a, it's, a, it's basic physics that tells us that if you increase the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, then more heat will be stored in the Earth. It's just, there's nothing fancy about it. And of course, as I say, here's the carbon dioxide in parts per million as you went through. We just passed 400 parts per million. And you can see that here's the historic levels. Okay, we can look at carbon dioxide in ice cores in Antarctica and other places. We can drill down deep, measure in the ice bubbles of the atmosphere, and measure the carbon dioxide over those years, over the last 500,000 years, and you can see the variation over the last 500,000 years, and then here we are now. There's never been a time in the history of the Earth where carbon dioxide has been in the atmosphere at any level, and in the recent history, back to four million years at least, where carbon dioxide has been at the level it has. Very early on in the history of the Earth, it was much, much higher. But in the last 500,000 years, and you'll see what's happened in the last 500,000 years and why you should be concerned. So then we can, do, we can do testing and we can do model building. We can ask, if we put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, what will happen? And of course, one of the big things is it isn't going to warm the Earth everywhere. Because of the, the complex dynamics of the oceans and the atmosphere, there'll be places that'll be, get cooler, places that'll get hotter. But the net average temperature of the Earth will increase, and that's exactly exactly what's happening, as one might predict. I guess I have to stand here closer to this thing so I can get it to move. Here's the global temperature, uh, 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 average temperature. It was a little colder than the, uh, in, uh, than the average of the 20th century there. Then it began to increase. And you can see now we finally just passed this year one degree higher 
as you would expect from basic physics. Now, when people say, well, you know, the heating up comes from the sun, the sun has variations and that's why it's changing, it's got nothing to do with carbon dioxide, one should realize that this is science. And there's lots of different ways to test hypotheses. And the important thing is not just global warming, but there are other consequences of putting carbon in the atmosphere. And one is exactly what I said. When you open what I used to call soda pop, I don't know what you call it here in New Zealand, soda pop? Soda? Pop? What's one of those? Anyway, you have it, you open it up, and it tastes nice and tart. Why? Because there's carbon dioxide under high pressure there, and that carbon dioxide under high pressure gets dissolved in the water and produces carbonic acid, which is what makes your soda pop tart. The reason your soda pop gets stale when you leave it out is that the pressure goes away the and the carbon dioxide basically comes out of being dissolved, the carbonic acid goes away and it gets stale. The same thing happens in the earth. And as we increase the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, more of it gets dissolved in the ocean. And we can actually see the oceans becoming more acidic. We can measure this, this is a fact. It's a due to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's not due to the sun getting brighter or dimmer. It's a direct chemical consequence of carbon dioxide. Now the interesting thing is, the sad thing is you can actually look and as the oceans become more acidic, you begin to dissolve shells. And there's a point in which you will not be able to have shells, any animals with shells in the ocean because they will dissolve. Again, simple chemistry. Now the other thing that people argue is, well, you know, we don't have time. We don't have money right now. Let's just wait till the world economy is better to deal with this. And the, uh, the thing that's worth realizing is that the carbon dioxide we put in there is going to stay there. So it's already happened. If you look at, if you say, okay, here's carbon emissions, um, uh, cumulative carbon emissions as, as the world keeps dumping carbon dioxide at its current rate, okay? Or maybe this year stops dumping at a current rate. Let's say this year it stopped all carbon production on Earth. Stopped this year. This is the carbon level in the atmosphere. The carbon stays in the atmosphere for 600 to 1,000 years. If we stop today, everything we've put in already will remain there. And that's of vital importance to understand. Because that means every year we dump more, it becomes harder to solve the problem. Because if we keep dumping and turn it off in 2200, this will be the level of carbon for, for uh, the next 1,000 years. And you can ask, what will that do to the mean temperature of the Earth? Well, the temperature of the Earth will remain, it, it'll heat up as we dump carbon in. If we turn it off now, if we turned off producing carbon now, it would still stay as hot as it, as, uh, with that extra degree temperature for about a thousand years. If we continue to produce it for another 50 or 100 years, it will stay at a temperature that's probably two to three degrees Celsius higher. This fact means, and by the way, this also means as we heat up the earth, we raise the sea level for two reasons. First of all, water expands when it gets warmer. So sea levels increase just from the fact that the oceans become water, warmer, aside from the, from, the, from the melting of ice. So you, you can just get, you just get an expansion due to temperature. And, uh, but here's the point. So let's say we want to solve this problem. Everywhere we wait, it gets harder. And if you look at the Paris Accords, they set a goal. But 
if, you, if, you, if we had stopped the, the overall increase in producing carbon in 2011, then in order to get down to the level where we hold the net cumulative amount of carbon in the atmosphere so that the net temperature rise on Earth was less than 2 degrees Celsius, we would have to decrease our production at 3.7% per year. But we didn't do that. If we turned it around in 2015, we'd have to decrease things by 5.3% per year. If we wait till 2020, which we are clearly maybe lucky to do, but we, in, in the Paris Accord we won't do it till 2025 at least, then we'd have to reduce it by 9% per year. So every year we wait, the requirements on technological change that allow us to reduce our reliance on carbon dioxide become more severe. So it's not something that we can put off for 10 years, because if we put it off for 10 years, the technological costs or the technological challenges become greater. And if we look at what we can do whether and how much we dump in the atmosphere, it will depend crucially on what we do now. Whether we continue to, to increase things or not will, will allow us to know whether we put 1,200 gigatons or 5,000 gigatons of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. This is an urgent problem that is real, and it's producing many, many things besides the acidification of the Earth, besides the global temperature rise in the Earth. We can see it happening. In Greenland, the ice is melting. You can look at the, at the amount of, um, uh, 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 of uh, uh, ice that's basically gone into the ocean, surface melting. It's continued to increase as the temperature of the Earth has increased. It's, again, there's, it's not rocket science. A high school student could, could see this. If you actually look at the, I, the ice mass in, in Greenland, it's been shrinking, and it's actually been shrinking at a faster rate than was even predicted. And you can see it in car it, it, incredible huge melts. And the problem is when the ice melts in, in Greenland, it goes down in hu these huge cascades. If it goes underneath the ice sheet, it actually lubricates it and will cause the ice sheet to in various places to slide into the ocean. If Greenland ice sheet disappears, which it will in certain models, that will increase the ocean levels by several meters. Now, it's interesting to see the ice melt uh, is different than Greenland and, and then Antarctica. And the point is, once again, things are not going to happen uniformly across the Earth. In fact, the places that are going to suffer the most from climate change are the equatorial regions, the people who had the least impact on producing that carbon dioxide, and the people with the least resources to respond to it. And there's a statement that uh, my parents used to have a little gift shop, which I worked in when I was a kid. And they used to have a sign up, you broke it, it's yours. Okay? We, the industrialized nations of the world, broke it. It's up to us to respond, and we're not. But all of this vindicates model claims that the effects of global warming are not uniform over the planet. It was predicted that Greenland would be affected more seriously than Antarctica. And because of the melting, you can see, this is another measurement, it's not a model. You can see that the sea level has increased and continuing to raise, as predicted. I just came from Antarctica last year, where I was actually on a, a boat with a lot of Australians who go from, from Perth, and from the western part of Australia, where they do a lot of coal mining and other things. And they were not exactly fans of, of the idea of global warming. They didn't believe it. But, we, we actually, but when you're there and you see the West Antarctic ice sheet going away, and, and I lectured to them about the basic physics, the data, not the models, the data, um, even they became 
concerned. And, and I, I could spend a whole lecture on Antarctica because it's, it's terrifying to see what's happening, uh, but I won't. I'll be happy to talk about it. But this is one of the reasons I'm concerned. So this is, this is measurements of, of, of temperature. These are observations of temperature, which, which you can get, again, from ice cores. And the calculated temperature based on the carbon dioxide. And you can see the models fit the data pretty well over the last 500,000 years. Okay? This is glo the global sea levels during that same time. It didn't change by millimeters. During the past 500,000 years, during which carbon dioxide has never approached to almost within a factor of two of the present level, sea levels have changed by 80 meters. Not 80 centimeters, not 80 millimeters, but 80 meters. Okay? And we're living in, 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 a, in a new age. So I just wanted to, to really cheer you up and, and, and point out that this is a severe problem that's obvious and real, and yet political leaders around the world are doing absolutely nothing about it to first approximation. I, I, I just flew in from, Aust from Melbourne today, and, and I'll be in Australia, and I'll be on the program they have called Q&A, where I get to with their idiotic politicians sometimes. And, um, and, and, and in Australia, I want to talk about the fact that they're ne they're, 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 government has given a billion dollars to a new coal mine, a huge coal project to do with China. The government, and, and th there's no rationale for taking that coal out of, the, out of the earth. In fact, it produces more deaths than almost anything else. But it, any sensible government would leave that coal in the ground. There are other threats that we began to worry about. For the, we've talked about emerging technologies in my time as chair of the Bolton the Atomic Scientists. This is the first time we've actually recognized these, the potential threat of these technologies in the current time in an existential way. And it came from the US election. For the first time, cyber terrorism and cyber hacking has changed things. As you know, Russia and we'll learn about it happily over investigations that are going to happen in my country over the next few months. They'll hopefully change things dramatically. Uh, but what we find out is that right now, because of the fact that people go online and can't trust the news they get, and don't know how to get the right news, they lost, they've lost trust in democracy. Right now, I would, it, it, as an example in my country, so you know, it's clear that President Trump has done a variety of ridiculous things in the last few months, in particular, potentially obstructing justice. But I just read a report in the New York Times today that talks about the fact that his constituents think that's fake news, that the news media are inventing these things because they don't like Donald Trump. That, 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 that undermining of democracy and the, is, is, is an existential threat to democratic processes in many countries. Happily, we've seen most recently in, in France and in, in other European countries that, that hacking threats have not been effective, as effective as they were in the United States, but that doesn't mean they will get more. This is interesting because in, in, in January, we pointed out that other sophisticated happen, hacking may create grave large-scale impacts on personal freedoms that are based on privacy. They might affect the world economic system. Well, you just saw this week that computers around the world have been hacked and, and people and in fact, banks and hospitals in England had to close because they didn't have access to the data files for patients and were held under ransom. This kind of global cyber warfare is a reality, and it's only going to get that the warfare, at least, is only going to get more severe. 
That's just cyber technology, but there are other technologies. There's great technologies that are coming by in biotechnology that will improve, potentially improve our lives tremendously. But right now, because of CRISPR technology, which basically allows us to selectively edit DNA, that opens us up to, to hacking of DNA. It provides, for the very first time, relatively unsophisticated laboratories the opportunity to create potentially dangerous materials, viruses and other things. And it's really important that we recognize that as an emerging threat. Now, for the first time, we pointed out that, that, that our decision to move things by 30 seconds was impacted by a single individual, because that individual was going to be the President of the United States. And the factors, and we said, they're just words, and words are different than actions. But words mean something when they're said by the President of the United States, in principle. And so the things, so at the, before his inauguration, he called for a buildup of nuclear weapons. He was the first president over 35 years to do so. He said, let there be an arms race. He called for nuclear proliferation. He urged Japan and South Korea to build their own nuclear weapons. He called for scrapping the Iranian nuclear treaty. He demonstrated no understanding of nuclear deterrence. He said, if we have them, then we must plan to use them. And he said he might use them in Europe if necessary. These were the things that, when, these were statements that no president in recent times has made that concerned us. He also appointed people with no knowledge of the field. In particular, the Department of Energy is the chief agency in the United States that safeguards nuclear weapons that monitors them, determines their efficacy. And he appointed the former governor of Texas, who had called for scrapping the DOE, to be head of the DOE. And after he got appointed, Rick Perry said, I didn't know we governed nuclear weapons at the DOE. Okay. There wasn't just Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, the two of them were, were, were beginning to saber rattle in a way that was reminiscent of the Cold War. And as, as was said many years ago, the two countries at that time, when the Cold War was, was at its height, were two scorpions in a bottle, stinging each other to death. And the question is, will that happen again? That was before the inauguration. We were hesitant to move the clock further because we said, well, look, this is, these are just worrisome statements in the context of a world that is in many ways becoming more dangerous. But we'll wait and see what happens. Now, we'll, what's happened since then? Not good things. He certainly threatened at one, more than one point or another military action against North Korea, which now has nuclear weapons, and, would, and also four million troops that could overrun South Korea in a day. He's made no use of, the, of what was the complete U.S. diplomatic infrastructure, shows no understanding of global issues in the statements he makes. He's leaked classified information to other countries. That happened, as you know, a week ago. He's appointed opponents of climate change and the environment and women's rights to lead the agencies that are supposed to be responsible for those things. In every single one, he's appointed people who have either let, who either filed lawsuits against those agencies or said, as the head of the, of, of the EPA right now says, climate change is a hoax. Gotten rid of scientific, environment, of scientific advisory groups in the Environmental Protection Agency panels. And, and while it's not completely related, but it is, because educating women around the world is a key to solving many of the problems that we're talking about, 
He's, uh, he, he's just appointed two people to head agencies in the United States for, for example, reproductive rights who don't believe in the new current head of in health and human services for reproductive issues in the United States does not believe contraception works <laughs> and has said that the morning after pill is abortion. Um, he's appointed, and those are the worst, but the, but the others are equally bad. He's appointed not just Rick Perry, but many cabinet secretaries who have no knowledge of the fields they're in, in education, in, 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 in many other areas. So things have gotten worse, okay? Oh, yeah, sorry, I just uh, went the wrong way. Let's, these are so bad, I might as well see them again anyway. That's what's happening. Okay. So, that's the bad news. I want to spend 10 minutes arguing that you shouldn't just kill yourself. <laughs> I mean, New Zealand's a nice, I was looking, actually, I was going to show a plot of where the, the uh, North Korean missile could reach. Um, and, but I didn't show it because it can't, reach, it can't reach New Zealand. I was hoping it would. And then, and then I could show you that even you have to worry. But um, what to do? And this is a good question. I want to read some statements we made. This is a little too ver many words for a slide, but I'll read it. Because these are things that need to be done. We've called on the US and Russian presidents to enter into real negotiations for nuclear weapons reductions, which haven't happened. And to take their weapons off the dangerous alert status they're on. If you want to really get scared, read a book by um, Schlosser, I forget his first name, called Command and Control and you'll discover how many times over the last 70 years the world has almost been annihilated by accident. Okay? Because of false signals, because of, 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 of mistakes at nuclear weapons sites, the only way to, to stop those accidents is not to build up nuclear weapons, but to reduce them. Russia, US, China, and other countries need to actively engage North Korea on nuclear weapons issues together, jointly, and work to discourage Pakistan and India from building up their arsenals, which they're doing. Pakistan, in fact, China is helping Pakistan with nuclear submarines right now. We need to maintain our nuclear agreement with Iran and potentially build on that agreement to encourage that country to devote its resources elsewhere for the long term. Congress should ratify the Comprehensive Trust Fund Treaty, which we've never done in the United States. These things, should these things should make clear what our intents are. And right now, our intention seems to be to build up new nuclear weapons. That sends a message to the rest of the world especially to those countries that don't have nuclear weapons, that view the possibility of having nuclear weapons as a, giving them a new diplomatic chance of dealing with, with nuclear weapon states, which is exactly what North Korea is doing. It's not irrational what North Korea is, it's quite rational what North Korea is doing in the context of, of the nuclear weapon states behaving as they are. But the point that we wanted to make, and the point of the clock, is that the world, world leaders cannot be relied upon. The only way we'll do that is the public. This has happened before in my country in Vietnam, but even in other cases. In fact, the Non-Proliferation Treaty was developed because of a mass, and Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty at least was proposed because of mass public demonstrations. The public has an impact in democracies because it is true that politicians, they may not care what's good for the public. In my country, they certainly don't. But they care about getting reelected, and the public can have an impact. The public needs to react and, be, and, and, and act loudly. And the public is remarkably complacent about a number of these issues. 
Climate change is getting more pressed, but nuclear weapons aren't. Because we've lived in a world in which there has not been a nuclear weapons explosion in over 70 years, most people just... Every time I write a, uh, an article on nuclear weapons, I'm amazed at how little impact it has. Because we act as though this equilibrium which has survived, look, there's been no nuclear weapons, so there won't be a nuclear weapons explosion. There will be. I don't make predictions about the future in general. I've often said I don't make predictions about anything but things that will happen two trillion years in the future. That's what I do for a living. And, and I do it for two reasons, because one, there'll be no one around to check me. And two, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to predict the future of the universe than the future of humanity. But I would be very surprised if there not, is not the use of a nuclear weapon against a civilian population in this century. And, and this gets me to the point that relates to, to, to the issue I really want to make, and the issue that does relate to my book. I wrote this book, which is the greatest story ever told so far, which is about the revolutions in our understanding of the fundamental structure of nature. And it is an amazing story. It's an amazing story of how science could take us from the illusion of reality that we live in. The world we see is an illusion. At an underlying level, it's completely different. It's certainly not designed for us. We're here because of an accident, a series of accidents, that make the world we see looks like it's designed for us, but it's not. If a field didn't freeze in a certain configuration in the early history of the universe, if it was frozen slightly differently, we wouldn't be here. It's as much of an accident as an ice crystal pointing in one direction on a window as another. We have gotten through this surface illusion by using the techniques of science to try and probe the most difficult areas we've been ever able to, to see and build experiments to test them with thousands of physicists from hundreds of countries that bring people together. And that scientific methodology is not just useful for understanding the fundamental structure of the universe. The problem is, we teach science the wrong way, and this relates to the problem of democracy. In our schools, and in the, among the public, science is viewed as a set of facts. Because when I was going to school, that's what you learned, a bunch of facts. But now, you know, this, this has many more facts than you can get in school. It has many more misfacts as well. We have alternative facts in my country now. But the problem is, science isn't that. What science is, is a process for deriving facts, and we don't teach that in school. It really doesn't, the facts are not important in, to a large extent. What we need to teach students are the, is the process of deriving the facts, the process of taking the wheat from the chaff. How to determine what's sense and nonsense and how to distinguish between them. That will determine the successful adults and the viability of democracy in the 21st and 22nd century. In a world where there'll be equal numbers of facts and alternative facts that you can get, how to filter information will be the key for the public. And science is the way to filter information. It's that process that we need to talk about. The process that led to the world that I talk about in my new book, that led to the amazing discoveries of the universe from the largest scales to the smallest scales. It's a simple process, but we need to we need to put in our educational system. It's too late for most of you. Well, you're the, you know, speechy and the converted. But, but what we need to do is change the way we educate young people about empirical reality. Because in my opinion, that is the only long-term way that we will have democracies that will thrive. And it's simple. 
The same tools that cut through the illusion of reality can cut through political illusions. Those tools are quite simple. Skeptical inquiry. Reliance on empirical evidence. What's the evidence behind what you say? Do you ever hear that asked in a press conference in my country? Constant testing. So you say it, you raise that evidence, but test your ideas. Go back and test them over and over and over again. Because the easiest person to fool is yourself. Because we all want to believe. So if something appears to validate our ideas, we, we often stop testing there. Okay? Because we all, we all like to think that what happens to us is significant. And my Richard Feynman used to go around to go people and go, you won't believe what happened to me today. You just won't believe what happened to me. People go, what? And you go, absolutely nothing. <laughs> because it always, everything that happens to us is somehow significant. When usually it's just an accident. And the other aspect is, you do an experiment once, but don't believe it when it's one experiment. You've got to see, you've got to have it confirmed. If you read something online, go to multiple sources, different sources, to confirm it, to see if it's just some hacking that's going on. These things which have been useful to us and are the basis of my field are an essential part of what we need to address these problems of the, tw of the global problems that have caused us to move the doomsday clock forward. We said in our statement, the Bolton is extremely concerned about the willingness of governments, including the current U.S. administration, to ignore or discount sound science, empirical evidence, and considered expertise during their decision-making process. Facts are stubborn things, and they must be taken into account if the future of humanity is to be preserved long-term. So, to step back from this dangerous brink we're at requires world leaders who have vision and restraint of which there are none <laughs> that I know of. Well, maybe one or two. Remarkably, those people are in the countries that are now disappearing under the ocean. Whether such leaders will emerge will not depend on the quality of the leaders, but will depend on the public requiring that. It will depend on the world community acting loudly. We cannot rely on our leaders to deal with these global problems because there's no evidence they are. And that's why these are urgent issues, and that's why it's worth talking about here and elsewhere. Because we have to complain, we have to vote, we have to run, and we have to change things. So the end statement we made when we introduced the clock this year, when I ended my, my introduction, was the clock's future, and our future, is in your hands. And the only way we can push it back is to all become activists. Thank you very much. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.